It's great to meet you. It's great to see the church. Um, we've uh, been praying for the work of the Globe Church. There are actually countless churches around the country that are praying for you. So it's so exciting to see how the Lord is growing and developing the work here. It's a real privilege to be uh, with you. I'd like you to turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. To uh, Romans chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through to verse 26. Anybody finds the uh, church Bible? If you've got a page, anybody found the page yet? 1130. So if you're using one of the church Bibles, page 1130. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you tell us that the Holy Scriptures were breathed out by your Spirit and that you speak to us through them today. Thank you that through those Scriptures we are made wise for salvation in the Lord Jesus and we are taught, rebuked, corrected and trained so that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we ask and pray that you might speak to us, you might reveal Jesus to us, you might train us and transform us and equip us. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Well, as Shanti said a little bit earlier, today is Remembrance Sunday. It's that sort of our annual time of the year at which we remember all those who've sacrificed their lives in war to bring us uh, freedom. It seems to be a, a bigger event year on year. Um, uh, as we just kind of increasingly appreciate that the uh, freedom and peace that we enjoy today was as a result of the blood that was shed by others who went before us. Perhaps this year in particular, the uh, sort of uh, Remembrance Sunday is, is more poignant as it's the 100th anniversary of the Battle of the Somme, which took place between the uh, 1st of July and the 18th of November uh, 1916. The Battle of the Somme saw literally hundreds of thousands of people lay down their lives in, in that great battle. I don't know if you've seen the pictures of the uh, kind of cathedral in Bristol where they've got laid out sort of 19,240 just small figures. That's the number of uh, men who were killed on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. And uh, just looking at that is deeply moving as it brings home something of the scale of the uh, sacrifice. In total, in the Battle of the Somme, 419,000 people uh, sort of uh, were casualties on the British side in a battle that in the end resulted in just uh, an advance of six miles of ground. It wasn't a, a totally futile campaign. It did contribute significantly to the defeat of the Germans. It meant that the uh, French armies that were besieged at Verdun were relieved and were able to continue to hold out. And in the end, it brought about the, uh, the victory that secured freedom. 
Well, whether it's the First World War and the Battle of the Somme, whether it's the Second World War, uh, whether it's the, uh, uh, the uh, kind of uh, uh, more contemporary veteran uh, soldiers who've laid down their lives in Iraq and uh, 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 kind of in Afghanistan, um, uh, we need to recognise that the freedom that we enjoy is as a result of the sacrifice that others have made on behalf of us. Remembrance Day is an opportunity to uh, reflect uh, on that. But as we come to this passage today, we're reminded that the Christian faith, at its very heart, is also all about uh, a sacrifice that brings our freedom. That's the very heart of what Christianity is all about. It's all about a sacrifice that secures freedom uh, for us. That's what this uh, passage that we're looking about this afternoon um, is all about. And this passage really, in many ways, summarises the very heart of the Christian faith. What this passage tells us is that because of what God has done through Jesus, because of Jesus' sacrifice for us, because of his willingness to shed his blood, we can enjoy freedom. Paul speaks in verse 24 of the redemption that has come through Christ Jesus. And the word redemption is a a word that speaks of freedom. To be redeemed means to be set free, to be set free from an oppressor or to be set free from slavery. In the ancient world, it might have meant somebody who had been a slave being sort of set free so that they became a free person and they no longer had a master that they had to serve. Or it might have been used of somebody who was a prisoner of war, who was ransomed and then set free. For the Israelites, it would have reminded them of um, the slavery that they experienced in Egypt when God rescued them and brought them into the freedom of the promised land. But it's a wonderful word that describes being delivered from slavery and bondage and brought into freedom. What Paul is saying here is that that's what God has done for us. And he's done it through the death, through the sacrifice of uh, Jesus Christ. And you might wonder what it is that we need to be freed from. Well, the answer uh, is that we need to be freed from our slavery to sin. Um, We're looking at at a letter that Paul wrote to the uh, church Uh, in Rome. Paul was uh, writing this letter um, because he was planning on coming and visiting the church in Rome. He'd finished his missionary work in Asia and he was planning on uh, uh, sort of in a sense church planting in Spain, a place where the gospel hadn't yet been taken. Paul's great heart was always to take the good news of the gospel to places where Christ wasn't known and he was kind of writing to Rome because he was going to come and visit them and he wanted their help, he wanted their support to take the gospel onto Spain. And he writes this letter to set out for them the gospel that he proclaims. So it seems that for some reason or other they're a bit suspicious of Paul. They don't particularly like his message. They maybe have heard some rumours about him. They are are particularly perhaps concerned about the way he's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and they think that might be undermining sort of kind of the Jewish law and Jewish culture and heritage. And so Paul writes this letter to explain to them what his message is, to defend it with the goal that they will get behind him for his next missionary sort of journey. So he's setting out his gospel um, uh, for them. And as we uh, kind of read this letter some 2,000 years later, it helps us to understand what the gospel is. It uh, helps us to have confidence in the gospel because Paul says that the gospel that he proclaims is God's power for salvation for everybody who believes. But it also motivates us to want to share that gospel with others, take the good news of Jesus to those who haven't heard or who haven't believed. 
But we're kind of diving in uh, the letter. And uh, in the chapters before, chapter 3, Paul has explained the slavery from which we need to be freed. And he's explained in the opening chapters how every single human being is enslaved to sin. That's the bondage that we're under. Paul has spoken about how we were created in the image of God, how we were made um, uh, to know and worship God, but how tragically human beings have rejected God and rebelled against him. Rather than uh, worshipping him and serving him as they should do, we've um, uh, kind of uh, uh, abandoned him and exchanged his glory to worship created things. So rather than worshipping the God who made us, we worship the things that God made. In the ancient world, that might have been seen particularly in the worship of false gods, the uh, gods of Rome, the gods of Greece, the pagan statues that they worshipped. For us, that idolatry is worshipping money, career, sex, popularity, um, uh, 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 those sort of our attractiveness, our beauty. Those are good gifts that we might enjoy. Um, we worship in the place of God. We don't give God the glory. Um, instead, we worship those things. And Paul has explained that because of that, God has handed us over to sin. He says um, uh, that uh, he has handed over us, us over to the power of sin. And sin is like a, an addictive force in our lives that causes us to want to rebel against God and reject God, that produces in our hearts and lives all kinds of wicked desires that we have to fight against. And Paul says that every single human being is in bondage to that power of sin. Sin is not just wrong things that we do, although it leads to that. Sin is our orientation of rebellion against God. And Paul says that every single human being has been handed over to that slavery to sin. That's why you can't by nature do the good that you want to do. That's why you have to battle wicked desires in your heart and in your life because we've been handed over to bondage um, to sin. But you see, the great good news of the gospel, the great good news of the Christian faith is that we can be liberated from that. We can be freed from that bondage. And that's what uh, Paul is explaining here. God has done for us through uh, Jesus uh, Christ. What Paul is saying here is that God has done something that has changed the world forever. That's how uh, Paul begins in uh, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made. No, that but now is uh, Paul is saying in the past God did one thing, but now he's done something different. He's changed everything forever. He's introduced a whole new era that means we no longer need to be under the bondage to sin um, that we were under. And what we see in this passage are there are three things that God has done. Three crucial things that God has done through Jesus that have changed everything forever and that are the very heart of the gospel and the very heart of the Christian faith. And the first of those is this. He has revealed his righteousness. He's revealed his righteousness. Look at verse 21. Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now the crucial point that Paul is making there is he's saying that in Jesus, God has revealed or made known his uh, righteousness. 
And that idea of God revealing his righteousness kind of involves two elements. On the first hand, God has revealed his righteousness in the sense that he has shown that he's a faithful God who keeps his promises. So God's righteousness at one level is his own righteous character, his character of goodness and faithfulness. And he's shown that he's a God who keeps his promises. The Old Testament is filled with the promises of God. God has said that even though human beings had sinned and rebelled against him, he was going to save and rescue a people for himself. Beginning with Abraham, he was going to bless him and make him a great nation. And then through Abraham, bless all nations. And for nearly uh, uh, 1,500 years, God's people had been waiting for God to keep his promises. And the question was, was God really a God who would keep his word? And in Jesus... God has revealed his righteousness. He's shown that he is faithful to his promises. But it involves another element as well, because the way that God has revealed his righteousness is by giving his righteousness to his people. It's not just that he's shown that he's faithful to his promises, he keeps his covenant, but he gives righteousness as a status to his people. That's what it means that um, uh, the uh, righteousness of God has been made known. And notice uh, what Paul says in verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. It's more than just God's character being made known. He gives his righteousness. Now righteousness here means a status. Um, And to be righteous is, is to be in the status of being right before God. Um, It's closely connected to another word that Paul uses here, which is the word justify. The word uh, justify and the word righteous are are basically the same root word. And to justify means to declare righteous. And what Paul is saying here is that God gives people his righteousness, and then when he does that, he declares them to be righteous. Now, it's a, a kind of a legal word. The um, idea of having a righteous status and the idea of being declared righteous is a legal idea. It's the idea of being declared to be innocent, to be acquitted of any charges. I don't know if you were uh, following the case of Ched Evans, whether you kind of agree or not with what happened in that case, but Ched Evans was originally found guilty of a kind of rape. He was kind of then, as it were, sort of declared to be guilty. His conviction was then quashed by the Court of Appeal and then he was tried again and at the end of that trial he was declared by the jury to be innocent. They brought in a verdict of not guilty. Now can you see his status changed from the one hand guilty and therefore deserving of condemnation to the new status that was declared of being innocent. Uh, And that's exactly what justification means. Justification is like that verdict of not guilty that declares a person to be innocent. And what uh, Paul is saying here is that through Jesus and what God has done through him, revealing his righteousness, God gives the gift of righteousness to us and declares us uh, to be innocent uh, before him. And that is brilliant news because we need to be declared righteous Because at the moment we stand under the judgment of God. Here Paul talks about how Jesus has revealed the righteousness of God. Earlier in the letter in chapter 1, Paul's spoken about how God has revealed his wrath. Because of our sin and our rebellion, because we've not worshipped him, God is rightly angry with us. 
He's rightly angry with our attitude of rebellion to him. He's rightly angry with the wicked things that we do. And we therefore deserve his judgment. Paul has spoken about how every single human being will in the end appear before the judgment seat of God. Each one of us will have to give account for our lives. And every single one of us will be found to be guilty without excuse and deserving of condemnation and the penalty of death. And that's why what God has done in Jesus is such good news. Because it means that that verdict that we deserve can be reversed. Rather than being condemned and are declared guilty, we can be declared innocent and righteous. Because God's righteousness is made available to us uh, as a gift. And you notice that Paul says that this righteousness doesn't come through the law, so it's a, a righteousness that's revealed apart from the law. It's not by keeping the commands that God revealed to his people. No, Paul has already explained the law was never given as a way of getting right with God, never given as a way of uh, kind of earning that uh, status of innocence. No, the law was there to reveal our guilt so that we know that we need um, uh, a sort of uh, God's righteousness to be given to us. So it's, uh, it's not um, uh, through the law. It's given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. And the really shocking and the striking thing is there in verse 22. This righteousness comes as a sheer gift. It's given uh, to us. It's not earned. It's not by anything that we do. It comes as God's gift. And uh, we're told in verse 24 that this justification comes freely through his grace. It's not deserved. It's the very opposite of what we deserve. And yet God is willing to give us his righteousness and declare us to be innocent. So here's the first thing that God has done. He has revealed his righteousness. He's shown that he keeps his promises, but he gives his righteousness. He's prepared to give a righteous status to all those who have faith in Christ. And that's tremendously good news because that is our greatest need. Our greatest need is to be righteous before God because the only alternative is to be under his wrath and to face his judgment. But God has revealed his righteousness in Christ. Well, secondly, what's the second thing that, Christ, uh, that God has done? Well, he's presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. He's presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. That's verse uh, 25 of this passage. Uh, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. You see, I've spoken about how uh, God has revealed his righteousness through Jesus so that we can be given a righteous status, so we can be declared to be innocent. But that immediately asks the question, how on earth can God do that? I don't know if you ever watch kind of magic shows. Maybe you watch someone like Darren Brown or other well-known magicians. They do these amazing things. And you're kind of left asking the question, how on earth did they do that? How on earth could that seemingly impossible thing to be done? Well, of course, we know in those cases that they're just illusions. They're just tricks. It didn't really happen. Well, that's not the case with God. When God declares us to be righteous, if we put our faith in Jesus, then it's something that really happens. But it raises the question, how on earth does God do that? Well, verse 25 is the answer. Verse 25 is the explanation. God does it by presenting Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. The way that God reveals his righteousness, the way that he's able to declare us to be righteous, 
is because of the sacrifice of Christ and the shedding of his blood. Because it's through the sacrifice of Christ, through his shed blood, that sin is dealt with and God's wrath is taken away. This is the very heart of what the Christian faith is all uh, about. Paul here uh, speaks of uh, God presenting Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. And the language means a public display, a public manifestation or public revelation. And what Paul is speaking about here is Jesus' death on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, uh, on a hill outside of Jerusalem, nailed to a a kind of a, a wooden pole, God was presenting him as a sacrifice of uh, atonement. That's why the cross is at the very heart of the Christian faith and has become its universal symbol. Now what does um, Paul mean here by this idea of a sacrifice of atonement? Well, he means a sacrifice that takes away the wrath of God. Uh, A sacrifice um, uh, in which someone else pays the penalty of God's judgment that we deserve. The language is taken from the Old Testament. The language is taken from the Old Testament Day of Atonement, which is spoken of in Leviticus chapter 16. The Day of Atonement was perhaps the most important day in the life of the Jewish people. What happened on the uh, Day of Atonement was that the uh, uh, entire people would come before God in Jerusalem at the temple. The whole purpose of the uh, Day of Atonement was to cleanse the people from their sin, to cleanse them from all the sin and all the guilt that had been accumulated in the last year. See, as God's people had not lived faithfully to him as they'd sinned, in a sense they'd built up guilt and uncleanness which deserved God's judgment. And on the Day of Atonement, once a year, um, all that guilt was taken away. What happened was the high priest would sacrifice a goat... The goat would be killed and its uh, sort of blood would be collected. And the high priest would walk into the very centre of the temple, the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain, the place where God symbolically dwelt with his people. In the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant, the kind of the gold chest that contained the uh, kind of stones of the Ten Commandments. And on the top of that chest, there was what was called the Atonement Cover or the Mercy Seat which was a kind of a solid gold cover with two giant cherubim on it. And the high priest would sprinkle the blood of this goat that had been killed on the atonement cover, on the mercy seat, to take away the sin of the people. And Leviticus chapter 16 says that the the life of the animal is in the blood, and when the uh, blood is offered, sin is dealt with, and God can declare his people to be clean. So that single sacrifice, once a year, took away all of the sin for all of the people. In essence, the goat died in the place of the people, so that the people could be forgiven by God. And what Paul is saying here is that that is exactly what Jesus has done for those who trust in him. When it says that uh, Christ presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, the language sacrifice of atonement is literally the word mercy seat, or atonement cover. It's the word used to describe that gold cover on the top of the ark where the blood was offered. What Paul is saying is that when Jesus died on the cross, when his blood was shed, he was making atonement for our sin, just like that goat. The key idea is that the goat died in the place of the people. And Jesus gave his life, shed his blood, 
bearing on himself the wrath of God and the judgment that we deserve so that we could be forgiven. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement to take away um, our sin so that we could be cleansed, so that God could uh, declare us to be righteous. I don't know if you notice here, but the uh, initiative for this sacrifice came from God. It's entirely of God. It was God who presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. And I guess there's a danger as we read that, uh, perhaps thinking of it too mechanically. We mustn't forget that um, the one who was sacrificed was Jesus, the eternal, precious, beloved, one and only Son of God. When God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, he was giving his dearly loved son. His dearly loved son was giving up his life, bearing um, uh, kind of God's judgment um, in our place. I don't know if you have children. I've got um, four kids. Let me be absolutely honest with you. I couldn't imagine giving up my children for any of you. I couldn't imagine sacrificing my child for your life. Well, that is what God has done for us in giving Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement for us. That's why a little bit later in the book of Romans, um, uh, it speaks of how the death of Christ on the cross, God presenting him, is a demonstration of God's love for us and the full extent of his love. See, this is not merely mechanical. This is uh, God demonstrating the full extent of his love can you imagine a, a love uh, any greater than that? Than a father who would give his beloved son for uh, others who do not deserve it? Well, that's what God has done in presenting Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. But we also shouldn't think that Christ was somehow an unwilling victim here. It wasn't that sort of God presented Christ and somehow um, uh, uh, kind of forced it on him. Uh, the uh, New Testament, the uh, New Testament letters and the gospel account shows that Jesus was willing to offer his life to make atonement for our sin. In fact, he, he had eternally agreed with the Father that this is what he was going to do. He came into the world, became a human being entirely for this purpose. Uh, he told his disciples that he was going to head to Jerusalem um, in order to be rejected and to be crucified. And when they told him, no, that will never happen to you, he said, get behind me, Satan, that's what I've come to do. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was facing the prospect of drinking the cup of God's wrath and he was crying out to the Father, if there's any other way, but if not, um, uh, your will be done. He submitted himself willingly to um, uh, the Father's will. He became obedient to death on the cross demonstrates the love of God but it also demonstrates the great love of Jesus and his humble submission and obedience in his willingness to give his life. We mustn't think of it just mechanically. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of uh, atonement. In the uh, Battle of the Somme, one of the uh, casualties uh, who was killed in the battle was Raymond Asquith the uh, oldest son of the British Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith. Herbert Asquith had kind of, in a sense, presided over the war effort. As the uh, Prime Minister, he'd made all the key decisions with his kind of military staff. He'd decided to initiate the campaign. Uh, and as the course of that, his own son was killed. 
his own son sacrificed himself for the uh, war effort. In fact, even more than that, um, uh, actually Raymond Asquith uh, had actually had a quite cushy staff job. But when he knew that the Somme campaign was going to be undertaken, he volunteered to go to the front and asked to be relieved of his duties at the staff command in order to join the men at the front. He willingly put himself into the front line. The Prime Minister, whose son was sacrificed, and the son who was willing to go to the front line. Well, in a sense, that is what happened with Jesus. God the Father was willing to sacrifice his own son, but the son was willing to go to the cross to make atonement uh, for sin. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. And of course, again, that is great news for us. It's great news for us that Jesus was willing to make atonement because it's our sin that has been dealt with. We've sinned and we justly deserve God's judgment. But Jesus has already paid the judgment in full for us. In a way, our sin is like a debt. It's like a debt that's built up. And uh, uh, that debt has now been paid by somebody else so that we've been freed from it. We can't pay the debt ourselves, but God has paid the debt for it. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. And thirdly, thirdly and finally, the last thing that God did is through this, through the uh, sacrifice of Christ, he demonstrated his justice. Look at uh, the second half of verse 25 and 26. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, what Paul says here is actually quite surprising to us. We expect him to say, as he does later in the letter to the Romans, by this presenting of Christ of the sacrifice for atonement, God demonstrates his love for us. That's true. But that's not actually what Paul says here. What he says is that by presenting Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, God demonstrates his justice. He shows that he's a just God. And the point here is that by the death of Christ, God shows that he's not just overlooked sin, He's not changed the rules. He's not just shut his eyes. He has satisfied justice and the, the due penalty has been paid. You see, because God is a holy God and because he's a just God, he can't just ignore sin. That would be to violate his own character. Actually, the biggest problem that the Bible presents to us is how can God forgive? We live in a culture in which people can't possibly imagine that God could judge most people around us think it's a crazy idea to say that God is angry with us because of our sin and it's sort of kind of somehow unreasonable to think that God could judge. But actually the Bible says that the real problem is a different problem. If God is a holy God, how on earth can he possibly forgive us? When God appeared to uh, Moses in the Old Testament and revealed his glory to him, um, he declared two things about himself. He declared that he's the God of compassion and mercy who forgives sins. But he also declared that he's the God of justice who punishes sin to the third and fourth generation. And the problem is, how can you be both? How can you be a God who is compassionate and forgives sins, and yet at the same time a God who is just and punishes sin uh, as it deserves? Well, Paul says the answer, the reconciliation, is to be found in what 
Jesus has done through the cross. Because when Jesus died as a sacrifice of atonement, God's justice was satisfied. Uh, Paul's saying something remarkable here, that in the the moment that Jesus died, uh, Jesus was paying the penalty for all sins that had been committed before that time and for all the sins that his people will commit after that time. In that one moment, uh, all sin from all time was judged in Jesus. In the Old Testament times, God had forgiven his people, in a sense, in anticipation of what Jesus was going to do. And when Jesus died, he paid all of that past uh, sin. And um, uh, Jesus, in a sense, has, has anticipated all the sin that we're ever going to commit. And it was dealt with in that one moment when Jesus died. God's justice was satisfied. God has demonstrated that he is a just God. Uh, I was reading about a a guy called Neil um, uh, Alcott uh, just a few days ago. He was a a magistrate. And he found himself as a magistrate kind of trying uh, a kind of a refugee asylum seeker. The refugee um, uh, asylum seeker had been uh, kind of uh, found guilty of an offence and had been fined. But he'd been unable to pay his fine because basically he had no money. This guy um, couldn't work, he wasn't entitled to a job, and he didn't receive any benefit. All he received received was coupons for food. So he was in this kind of situation of having a a fine that he couldn't pay and no ability of getting any money. He was brought back before the uh, magistrate, and the result was his fine had to be increased again. He was fined for not being able to pay the fine that he couldn't pay. Well, Neil Alcott, who was the magistrate, duly applied the law and fined him the additional amount of money. But immediately having fined him, he uh, got out his own wallet and he paid the fine for the asylum seeker. Happened in uh, 2015. So he upheld the law, but he was willing to pay the fine. And there's a sense in which what Paul is saying here is that that's what God has done for us. He doesn't set the law aside, he doesn't change the standards. He satisfies the demands of the law, but he is the one who pays so that we can go free. God demonstrates his justice because he has dealt with the penalty that sin deserves. So here is the very heart of the Christian faith. Uh, A faith that is founded on a sacrificial death that brings freedom. And Paul is saying that God has done these three things that have changed the world forever. God has revealed his righteousness, his uh, faithful character, but also his righteous status that he gives to those who put their faith in Christ. Uh, God is the one who has um, uh, presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, the one who has borne the judgment in our place. And God has demonstrated that he is uh, a God of justice. He's uh, fully paid the penalty for sin so that he can justly justify those who trust uh, in Christ. And the challenge for us is how are we going to respond to what God has done? How are we going to respond to this sacrificial death that can bring us uh, freedom? Well, I guess the first question for all of us is this. Have we realised our need? Have we realised our need? You see, what Paul says here will only make sense to us if we've realised our need as those who've sinned and are under God's judgment. 
this will seem nonsense and it will seem irrelevant unless we first recognize that we are those who've sinned and are under the judgment of God and stand in danger of his judgment. Only if we've realized that we're those who've rebelled against God, who've exchanged the worship of God for the worship of created things, uh, who've been given over to the power of sin as a kind of addiction in our lives that enslaves us, only if we've understood that will what God has done through Jesus make any sense. So if you grasp your need, maybe you're here today and you're, you're not a Christian, but you know that your life is enslaved. You know that you're enslaved to all kinds of evil desires and wickedness that hold you in bondage. Have you realized that you need to be set free? Well, if we've realized our need, then the second question is, have we received God's gift? You see, what God is offering us here is the gift of freedom. You see, uh, uh, what God has accomplished for us uh, in Christ doesn't sort of benefit us automatically. We have to respond to it and receive it as a gift through faith. That's a theme that runs through this passage. Look at verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. The way that we receive a righteous status, the way that we're uh, acquitted and declared innocent is by putting our faith and trust in Jesus and receiving uh, his gift. And that's true for absolutely everybody. That's the only way to receive um, uh, God's gift of righteousness. But it's the way that absolutely anybody can receive God's gift of righteousness. There's no difference, Paul says, between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So have you received God's gift? Well, if you know that you need to be set free from sin, you can be sure of this. No matter what you've done, no matter how bad you might have been, no matter how bad what you're struggling with is, God's gift is still available to you. We can receive God's gift of righteousness by faith. That means turning to Christ, recognizing that he's the Lord and the King as we were singing a moment ago, trusting in what he has done for us to enable us to be forgiven. If we've received God's gift of righteousness, and I guess many of us who are here are Christians have, then the third question is, are we rejoicing in his salvation? If this gift is ours, our sin has been dealt with and we have been set free, what possible response can there be to that other than to rejoice? That we have been declared righteous and brought into a new relationship with God. Are you rejoicing in his salvation? As we look to the cross and realize what God has done for us, surely it should move us to rejoice afresh. Surely it should take away any guilt that we have. It brings us assurance and confidence that we're accepted by God. We don't live on the basis of our works. Our relationship with God isn't kind of um, affected by our daily performance because Jesus has already done it all for us. We should rejoice. And then lastly, if we've grasped what God has done, then result should be that we should delight to share the gospel with others. Actually, that's the very reason that Paul wrote this letter, is so that the Romans could understand what God had done for them in Christ, so that they would want to share that good news with, other and jo with others and join with Paul in his uh, next missionary outreach. You see, if we just think of what Paul has done, or what God has done for us in Jesus, if we just kind of intellectually 
remember that he's revealed his righteousness, he's presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, and he's demonstrated his justice, we actually miss the point. Because if we grasp those things, it should make us want to have confidence in the gospel. To realise afresh that it is God's power for the salvation of all who believe. And it should make us want to proclaim and share it with those who so desperately need to hear it. Have you realised your need? Have you received God's gift? Are you rejoicing in his salvation? Will you proclaim the gospel? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you and praise you for this word. And we're conscious that in a way we've only scratched the surface of what you say here. We haven't even really begun to grasp the wonder, the full extent of what you've uh, told us through your word. But we want to thank you and praise you that you are a God who presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement to take away our sin. We praise you and thank you that because of that, you've revealed your righteousness and you can declare us to be righteous when we put our faith in him. We thank you and praise you that you have demonstrated once and for all that you are a just God. So we give you praise and thanks. We ask that we might rejoice afresh in the gift that we've received from you by your grace. And please would we be so thrilled by the gospel that we delight to share it with others, that they too might come to share in this salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.